0: Before we begin, uh, it's my honor to call upon traditional knowledge keeper, Dr. Myra, Dr. Myra Laramie, who will offer opening insights. She's right on down here.
1: Hello. Good evening. Um, I'm not standing up because it wouldn't make much difference anyway. Um, you can probably see the top of my head from where you are. I've been asked to um, say a few words. Um, my, the folks that know me fairly well know that I've given up praying. I don't pray for anybody, with anybody, or for anybody. I think my mother had a, an understanding. In Cree I asked her, what does that mean, mom? Because in the English dictionary, it means to beg for. And the way she understood it, that our, our, our all being, whatever that is, however you see he or she, is a kind and generous, loving entity. And she said, all you have to do is and my girl. She said, just talk because you don't need to be special or on a pulpit or better than anybody else to be able to do that. So I'm gonna do that a little bit before the evening gets started. Or maybe the evening's already started a long time before we got here. I feel like it has. I remember sitting at my dining room table with my Mushom, my grandpa, my grandpa Tatusis, and all my sisters were with me. And he talked about something that scared the crap out of me. It was in 1980. And he told us that there was going to be a time on the earth when we would see pretty strong and powerful winds. We would see the waters rise up. We would see the earth shake. And we would see the fires roar. And he said, I'm not gonna be around when this time comes but you girls will be. And what happens to Mother Earth happens to us. And one of the things that I'm trying really, really hard to do in the work I have left on the Earth before I leave her, before I go home to her, is to help children know that she cares about them, but they also have to care about her. We have lost one of the strongest relationships that exists on this planet, and that is the relationship with our mother, Nima the Earth. She has given us forever everything we need to feed, clothe, house, and look after our children. And even in the way in which the wind moves, we can understand how to raise our children and how the water sounds. We know how to sing to our children. I had to explain something this summer to my grandchildren about their Uncle Will. I lost my son on May 3rd, my big son. He was six foot four, 348 pounds, big man, but he had a bad heart and the grandmothers took him home at 49. What I had to explain to my children and my grandchildren was that Uncle Will is now part of the grass and the water and the trees and the rain and everything that there is in Mother Earth And in some places they say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But what I learned for myself this summer was that I actually really believe that with all my heart and soul. When we return to Mother Earth, we feed her. Where does she get her food from? She gets her food from us. When I watched the fires rage along the coast last year, I thought to myself, I had this imagery of all the roots of those trees along the, the West Coast, ho- holding the West Coast intact together. What's gonna stop what, Mushem said was gonna happen about the West Coast falling into the ocean. What's gonna stop that now? I asked myself. The big roots from those big red fir trees, those those cedar trees. How do we replace those? We'll be gone the trees in, 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 is it Brazil where they had that big fire? I cried. How do we tell Mother Earth at this late date that we believe she's our relative? and that we care. The words of sustainability don't mean anything to her. She wants to know that we love her. Just like we love our mothers and our grandmothers. And so, I'm gonna say that much for tonight. Because I believe that I've seen many of your faces in many different places talking and listening about this exact topic. And I know that I'm not alone in that hope that we can do something before it's too late if it's not already too late. So I come with good heart, lots of love and we need, we need to, just one more. I'll tell you a story that happened to me last year. I, we took 100 kids from Winnipeg School Division out to Birds Hill Park. We went to pick Sage and realized that all the Sage had been picked clean. There was none left, it was gone. I said, what are we gonna do? So I got the kids to all sit down and touch the earth. And I said, I want you to feel her energy. And when you can feel something, take your hands and put them together and feel what's in between your hands. It comes from her. And these are high school kids, the kids that we wonder if they feel anything sometimes. And a lot of them started to cry And I said, now what I want you to do is take that feeling, take some of the tobacco that's in that bowl and go ask creator and mother earth, if we can see sage grow there again, if, if we can see that miracle happen because it had all been picked clean. And Winnipeg School Division has banned all of our classrooms from picking any sage in Birds Hill Park this year. Because even though smudging is a good thing, if we don't have protocols to follow, we can go down a slippery slope. And to me, that's what we're, where we are right now with Nima Mananiski.
0: Akuse. Thank you. Round of applause for Dr. Laramie, beautiful words as always. Uh, Just a little bit of housekeeping stuff for those wondering. The bathrooms are uh, at the back of the room to uh, your right, my left. If you go back there and just follow the right wall, you'll see them there Um, and anything else. There's a ton of foundation staff around, so just go ahead and ask. We'll be happy to help you with whatever you need. Up next, I'd like to invite the CEO of the Winnipeg Foundation, Rick Frost, up to say a few words. Rick.
2: Well, on behalf of uh, the board and staff of the Winnipeg Foundation, I better step back a little bit. Good evening, uh, everyone, and it's uh, a great pleasure to be able to welcome you all here tonight uh, to this uh, vital conversation your health, the risks, and realities of uh, climate change. On behalf of the Winnipeg Foundation, is that really echoing in that bed? It sounds like it's echoing terribly. On behalf of the board and staff of the Winnipeg Foundation, though, am I getting both these just things? Just this Is this one on too? Is that uh, if you push them, yeah, if you want to hold that one, just
0: press there, and then that should be
2: good. How's that? That's better, right? Eh? That's better. Okay, so on behalf of the board and staff of the Winnipeg Foundation, I do want to acknowledge that we are on the ancestral lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Dene, Dakota, Ojibwe, and Cree people, and we are gathered on Treaty One territory, the homeland of the Métis Nation. Um, we do acknowledge uh, this humbly to remind ourselves that as an organization, there is much work to be done um, as we travel the road of reconciliation. I know that there are people in the audience tonight who are not particularly familiar with the Winnipeg Foundation. Get my notes here. Um, So I thought I'd just take a second and uh, make a couple of comments about who we are and what we do. Uh, We're Canada's first community foundation. Uh, We're best known for grant making in the city. This year we will distribute somewhere between 45 and 50 million dollars to about 900 different organizations as grants. Um, We have Uh, endowments that generate these grants that have been given to us uh, since 1921. And these endowments are all invested, of course. There's 4,000 of them now that are generating income and they allow us to uh, do a lot of the work that we do. We're involved with a lot of leadership activity in the city. You might have heard of Nourishing Potential or Literacy for Life, our downtown green spaces program, the work we do in rural Manitoba. And even here in the hospital, we have a Winnipeg Foundation Innovation Grants. One of the leadership programs that we introduced a few years ago was called Vital Signs, uh, which was basically a public consultation process where we were talking to the public about what's important in the city as part of our strategic planning. Um, And we did a lot of research associated with that. And one of the outcomes of that uh, study or that process was an encouragement that the Winnipeg Foundation should convene meetings like this tonight. We should gather the community together and try to talk about um, the issues that are important that we see coming uh, in our work in the city and that we hear about from the community. So the Winnipeg Foundation's vision is a Winnipeg where community life flourishes for all. And this is the commitment that guides our work. And of course, it is certainly reliant on having a community that is habitable. Um, So Canadians are increasingly, I think, realizing that we are at a watershed moment of urgency to change the way we live our lives. It's clear that we're not doing enough when we are raising an entire generation that does not know the world without the impacts of climate change. When we hear the words climate change, often the first thought is about global warming. Uh, but what is becoming more obvious is that the impacts of climate change are far-reaching, and we are beginning to internalize, I think, as Myra was indicating in her words, uh, that, our pla- that our planet's health is directly connected to our own human health. And one of the mo- most important things I think we can do uh, to, uh, to take action is to, first of all, start talking about it. And so we call these sessions vital vital conversations and this is our opportunity for the community to gather to talk about what matters most in this area and tonight we're here to talk about a very important topic um, that that impacts all of our health having these conversations is important because they allow us to learn to connect to communicate and it influences the work that we do at the foundation Finally, um, I want to uh, say that we're pleased to uh, partner with the Green Action Center for tonight's event. We have an established good working relationship uh, with the center and the foundation has supported its road to resilience programming um, on climate change. I'd also like to uh, offer a special welcome or extend a special welcome to our guest speakers this evening, Kim Parada, who has flown. Uh, to us from Toronto to be with us tonight. And I have to say, Kim is really from Dundas, Ontario. And Dundas, for those of you who've never been, is the most beautiful little town in the entire country. It's my hometown. Um, <clears throat> so I'm very familiar with everything Kim knows about from, from Dundas, from that from that circumstance. And it's great to have you uh, here as a special guest for sure. Heather Mitchell is one of our friends from the Green Action Center, and Dr. Ian Morrill is from the Prairie Climate Action Center. I want to thank um, Nolan for stepping in and moderating uh, tonight's session. Uh, Nolan, as he already indicated, is a longtime time member, or seems like a while now since he's been a member of our communications team, and he's host of the Foundation's Because In Effect podcast, and I know he's gonna squeeze in advertising about that uh, throughout the evening. So once again, on behalf of the board and staff of the Winnipeg Foundation, thank you for joining us tonight. Please enjoy your evening.
0: The boys are quick back there. Thank you very much, Rick. Okay, so tonight, let's get to it. We're going to be discussing a very complex and multifaceted and interconnected issue of climate change and the impacts that we're seeing on human health as a result. So our hope is that with all of your input, we're going to be able to generate thoughts and ideas on our local efforts to mitigate the impacts of climate change. And what we can also discuss what we're doing and what we can do differently to create pathways to well-being. As Rick mentioned tonight, we're going to hear from our keynote speaker, Kim Parada, of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, also known as CAPE, who will share her insights from a national perspective. After Kim's keynote, our panelists are going to have an opportunity to comment on the presentation. And then we're going to hear from them about some local efforts that are underway on creating resilience to some of the more impending consequences of climate change. Our panelists tonight, as Rick mentioned, Dr. Ian Moreau from the Prairie Climate Center and Heather Mitchell from the Green Action Center. So throughout the whole evening, you're gonna be able to ask questions and make comments in response to what you're hearing. How we're going to be doing that is through an application called Slido. So if you have your cellular phone, you can open up Slido on your web browser, so if you go to slido.com and type in the event code WPG, vital Signs, all one word in the little hashtag spot there. Uh, there's paper available if you don't have a smartphone, and just put up your hand and we'll bring paper ballots, or not ballots, but uh, paper around so you can ask your questions that way. We do have a couple of polling questions for you as well to just kind of read the room and see where people are at when it comes to their knowledge of climate change and when it comes to what they're doing right now to mitigate some of the results. So, Just to get people familiar with how Slido works, we're going to put up the first question, which is just kind of a fun one just so you can understand how it works and we can work out any kinks and bugs uh, if we need to. So, The very first question of the evening is going to be, what superpower would you have if you could? <laughs> so. If you as we can see, some votes are already coming in. If you want to vote flying, invisibility, teleportation, or mind reading. And this, if you need a hand with anything, put up your hand and we've got tons of volunteers at the back that can come help you with your phone. Uh, if you don't have a smartphone, you can't participate in the polling, but you can participate in the questions. As we can see, teleportation taking a slight lead there, mind reading and flying very close. I think I'd probably pick flying if I could, but great decisions for everyone there. So there's going to be questions throughout the night that we're going to ask that are more climate change focused. Um, so just be have your phone on the ready and we'll, uh, we'll get back to that when we have it. And there's also a spot on Slido to submit your questions as well. So if you have any questions in regard to some of our speakers or panelists are, are talking about, submit those and then at the end of the night we're going to get to some, some audience questions. So let's get to uh, why you're all here, I guess. Uh, It's my pleasure to first introduce to you Kim Parada. Kim was the Executive Director of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, uh, but now serves as their Senior Director for Climate, Health, and Policy. So, CAPE is a national organization that educates its members, physicians, healthcare professionals, policymakers, and the public about environmental health issues. Kim has a master's degree in health science and more than three decades of experience looking at environmental questions through a health lens. Kim's work connects health issues such as air quality, physical activity, and food security all with climate change. And she has prepared dozens of reports on public health policy and on public health and land use planning. So put your hands together and welcome Kim, please.
3: Thank you. That was a really nice introduction. You will notice, the first thing you will notice is I changed the title. Um, The title of the presentation that I'm kind of... uh, Putting forward to you guys tonight is climate change, turning the climate crisis into a public health opportunity. So, next slide. What I'd like to start with tonight is just saying climate change is a public health crisis in the making. It's happening right now, it's going to get worse. The World Health Organization several years ago declared that climate change is the greatest health challenge of the 21st century. And um, one of the reasons for that is it affects so many aspects of our lives. And so climate change affects health in so many ways. It affects the, um, it the it um, increases the frequency and severity of extreme weather events like hurricanes, like we saw last week. Um, it, it increases heat waves and tornadoes and wildfires. All of these things are affected all of which affects us. It can affect um, diseases that are spread by animals, like mosquitoes, so things like malaria are spreading across the world. Um, It affects animal populations. There were some reports this summer that salmon were actually dying in some northern, um, I think it was in Alaska, because the water was too hot for them. And so it affects populations that we rely upon for for food. It affects crops that we use for food, clothing and shelter. It affects sea levels that can affect transportation and housing when get storm surges, and it can affect rainfall, which can mean that we end up with um, losing our water supplies or having floods. So there's just so many things that climate change does, and all of those can have an impact on human health. Oops, I, I don't have it here. Next slide. So. One of the things, over the last um, two decades, there's been a really growing kind of consensus among scientists. Scientists feel very, very certain. There's a strong consensus. Climate change is happening and human activity is the, is the primary cause. But I think for the public, it's been very hard because scientists always qualify everything. And so when an event would happen, people, they would, the scientists would say, well, we can't say that that event is caused because of climate change. Well, one of the things that's happened over the last number of years, there's been a number of attribution studies. So these are studies where people look at at, at specific extreme weather events, and they try to estimate what is the chance that that happened by natural causes alone, and how much does that have to do with uh, climate change, human-induced climate change, and there are over 200 studies have been done. They've looked at over 200 extreme events, and these were peer-reviewed studies, and the conclusion when those were all looked at together is that close to 70% of those extreme weather events over the last two decades were, were, there was a, they were made more severe by climate change. Not that climate change was causing them, but it was making them more severe. Next slide. So, I'm hoping that, I think for the public, I think that was kind of confusing. Can people hear okay? Or is it a little bit echoey? Or is it okay? It's okay? Um, I think for people, it has been hard, because scientists talk in all these qualifying languages, and then the media likes to kind of play with opposition and that, and it creates doubt. I think with some of these attribution studies, now people can kind of come out and say, oh, Fort McMurray, the chances that that was influenced by human-induced climate change is this much, and we're hoping that that will help the public to really understand just how much of an influence humans are having on on the climate? So significant harm has been happening with one degree of global warming. Right now, we are hovering around one degree of global warming and all the impacts that we're seeing over the last number of years. So, you know, category five hurricanes, which we haven't seen before, temperatures of like up to 40 degrees in Northern Europe, things that we just haven't seen before. These are all associated with this one degree of global warming. Now, the Lancet is the very prestigious medical journal. It's called the Lancet. And the Lancet has now looked at, they've kind of set up what they call the Lancet countdown report once a year started two years ago once a year they're going to have one whole journal supplement that is dedicated to looking at climate change and doing the countdown let's see what the impact is and this is being done by 27 academic institutions they're collecting data from 196 countries and they're looking at 41 indicators for climate change all these different indicators so I just want to point out that and I'm not sure if I can read it from here actually but I want to just point out that this was their conclusion of the report last year so this is from 27 institutions like academic institutions these are healthcare people working with climate scientists after looking at all the stats and they're not modeling they're not predicting they're looking at what's actually happening in the real world right now their conclusion was trends in climate change impacts exposures and vulnerabilities demonstrate an unacceptably high um, level of risk for the current and future health of populations across the world So this is coming from the prestigious medical journal, The Lancet, and it's based on actual observations of what's going on in the world, not predictions. Next slide. So I just I kind of went through their 2018 journal and just picked out a few examples, I mean this journal's pretty thick, so I just picked out a few examples to ground that for people so that people can understand what kinds of things they're looking at and why they're drawing these conclusions. So one of them is that they reported that in 2017 there were over 700 extreme weather events around the world and that they cost $326 billion that year in US dollars. And the reason I'm saying this is how often do we hear people say, we can't afford to make the changes, we can't afford to transform our economy. We need to understand, and this has been said by people like Mark Carney, who is, uh, he, was, he runs the bank uh, um, for the UK, he's been saying this for years, that there's, we're, we're past the point now where climate change is now starting to cost us more than it would cost us to prevent it. So just kind, of, just kind of think about that, 712 extreme events in one year. So the other example they have here is that they estimated that 3.4 billion weeks of work were lost in 2017 around the world, and these were lost because it was either too hot, in many cases it was because it was too hot for people to actually work. It would have been unsafe. And so what they were saying is that when they looked around the world at these 196 countries, oftentimes it was agricultural work. It was too hot for people to go into the fields. So just kind of think about the implications of that. So, the other point they made is that they had data from 30 different countries, and in all of those countries um, around agricultural yields. And what they said for all of those countries, the data was suggesting that agricultural yield are, yields are going to actually decrease because of climate change. And that has to do with um, maybe heavy rainfall coming at the wrong time of year, droughts happening more frequently. and and extreme heat. The reality is that plants can only kind of survive in a certain temperature range and we're starting to push that temperature range. And so there, again, the other conclusion they had from that 2018 report, and again, this is the medical journal, The Lancet, was they identified undernutrition, which many of us used to call kind of starvation, um, as the largest health impact of climate change in the 21st century. So just for all of us, I'm going to kind of talk more about the Canadian experience soon, but I kind of wanted to just start with the big picture, so we kind of have to look at our experience in that context. Next slide. So in, um, so one of the things I just want to say is that, so we're talking about all the impacts that we're seeing right now at one degree of global warming. Well, right now with the emissions that are being released, the climate emissions are being released around the world right now, we're on a trajectory to reach 2.6 to somewhere three or four degrees of global warming by the end of the century. Now I've heard health scientists say that if we get up that high, we will not have a world that is habitable for humans. So I think for people who are looking at this issue, we are talking about, potentially the extinction of human beings, maybe not, maybe we'll just live with technology. But we are actually talking about we're at that edge. We're kind of at that moment. We should have done this 20 years ago, but we're at that edge now. And so um, in in 2015, the wonderful thing that did happen is 195 countries came together and they signed the Paris Agreement. And so this was the first international agreement where that people actually made strong commitments to cut climate change and it was great. And the commitment that they all made was to hold global warming well below two degrees of global warming like hold it below two degrees and to pursue efforts to to get global warming keep it to 1.5 so we're at one we're well on our way to two next slide so after 2015 until last September what happened is the International Panel on Climate Change that works for all these international these countries that are working together on climate change and they examined what would be the impact of 1.5 degrees of, of global warming on the earth, and they looked at all these different like different um, elements. They looked at you know, the temperature. They looked at human health impacts. They looked at how it would affect transportation systems, economics, all kinds of factors. And then they looked at what would be the impacts with two degrees of global warming, just to see, I think kind of what happened is at that meeting in 2015, everybody wanted to do two, and I think some climate scientists came in and said, you guys, that's not going to do it. So, this study kind of came out, and it came out last September, 800 pages, very conservative science. We're talking about, you know, international scientists all working together using very, very conservative. They're not, they're probably underestimating the problem. But what they found, and I just, and again, an 800 page report, I picked up one statistic just to try and ground this from a health perspective. The statistic was that they found that if we allow temperatures to go up to two degrees of global warming, that several hundred Million more people every year will be harmed by climate change with either malnutrition or extreme heat or um, insect borne diseases. 100 million more than if we kept it at 1.5 degrees. So just take that in, several hundred million more people. And we're talking about this, like we're talking about something that could happen in the next 20 to 30 years. We're not talking about something that's way off in the distance. We're talking about something that's fairly fairly new. And what they were saying is at 1.5, we're going to see all the impacts that we're seeing now, but they're going to be amplified. But with two degrees, it's going to be what they describe things like, you know, we'll be killing coral reefs around the world. Like they kind of list all these things. What they describe can only be described as catastrophic. That if we get to two degrees, it's catastrophic. So next, uh, oh, and so then the, 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 um. The recommendations of the international panel on climate change so this is a report that came out last september that kind of freaked everybody out to be quite honest what they came out and they said we have to reduce our climate emissions by 45 percent by 2030 which is only 11 years away and that we have to get them down to zero by 2050 so this is the wake-up call moment for all of us and i think for all of us they've been saying this for 20 years and we haven't really listened but i think this is this is the moment we have to do it Um, Next, uh, next slide. So, I just kind of wanted to kind of give a little bit of a global picture because I think when we look at climate change in Canada alone, it doesn't really give you the enormity of the problem. We have to kind of look at a big picture. The reality is that we're lucky by geography. We aren't in one of the countries that's most vulnerable. The countries that are most vulnerable are island countries, low lying countries, and those countries that have been struggling to feed their population for years because of droughts or whatever reasons. We're also a very rich country. So, when we do have a catastrophe like Hurricane Dorian that hit, the Atlantic provinces this week, we actually have a public health um, system, we have healthcare system, we have emergency systems that kind of come into place. Many countries don't have that luxury. So we've been kind of protected from the climate change and we haven't felt the impacts, but the rest of the world has been feeling them. But, we ha- but they have been happening to us and we haven't really been, it hasn't been sinking into us. It hasn't been sinking in to us that what we're seeing isn't just climate, that is actually caused by human-induced climate change, and we haven't been making the links that is actually harming our health. So that's kind of what I want to talk a little bit more about now. And I just want to say to everybody here, 2018, summer of 2018, wildfires, smoke, floods, extreme heat, I feel like that was a wake-up call for Canadians. I think Canadians got it that summer. I don't know if others feel that way, but I feel like something shifted in our psyche last summer. Next, uh, Next slide. So the health risks for Canadians, like there's a number of them. So the first one is extreme heat. So last summer we had an extraordinarily hot summer, and in Winnipeg, in fact, you had 21 days. I went and counted them. 21 days. There were over 30 degrees. That's well above what you would normally have in Winnipeg. And if we continue with climate emissions the way they're going today, if we don't slow them down, stop them, then it is predicted that that. The number of days that you will have in Winnipeg will be double or triple what you've been used to within by 2051. So that's what this graph is showing and that will be true for a number of other cities across the country. And so I think for many of us, I know for me I can't stand hot, humid days. I find I tend to hide out in my home and I live in Hamilton and we had a really hot summer last summer. I just found I was hiding out. Um, It's not just annoying. We get heat stroke people, we get premature deaths, um, people who have cardiovascular disease, respiratory diseases. These people end up in the hospital. Sometimes they die. So last summer, Montreal actually documented that 74 people died during a one-week heat wave in July. And um, now people have said to me, well, how come they happened in Quebec and nowhere else? Well, it happened in Quebec because Quebec was tracking it. It's not that it's not happening anywhere else, we just weren't tracking it the way they were, so they were able to respond. In a few years from now, we might see some studies coming out of other provinces where they're documenting how many people died in their province. But right now, they were doing it in real time and nobody else has been doing that. Um, Next next slide. So another risk, air pollution. And I just want to say, I'm somebody, i worked on air pollution quite a bit in Toronto 20 years ago. Climate. Uh, air pollution has improved in some provinces greatly, but it's still a significant health risk in in, Ontario, in Canada. 14,000 deaths a year are associated with air, air pollution already. And those are numbers that came from Health Canada and those that's kind of the, the tip of the iceberg. We know for every premature death you have that many more people who end up being hospitalized, that many more people who end up being in emergency rooms, this many more people who have to stay home from work because um, their asthma has been aggravated or for some other cause that's associated with air pollution. So that 14,000 represents a huge kind of um, burden of illness for Canadians. And yet climate change is expected to increase air pollution in several different ways, in one way is that hotter weather will actually you know, kind of cook, cook the air pollutants so we get more smog. So we'll get more ground-level ozone that irritates our lungs. Um, we're also already seeing this. There was a study that came out this week saying this, that we're already seeing higher levels of pollen and spores in the air. And when they have humid air, it holds them in the air longer. So people who have allergies are having a harder time. So that's already been documented. Um, And the other thing is forest fires and droughts and dust storms all contribute to air pollution. So last summer, when we had all those wildfires out in BC, Calgary, Vancouver, and Edmonton actually had air quality health indexes that were eight, 10, and 10 plus. This is off the chart. These are numbers we never see. It was considered high risk, extremely high risk. So we're talking about air pollution levels that are high enough that people could die, could be hospitalized, and we're talking about exposures for young children that could actually impact their health for the rest of their lives. You know, if, you, if children are exposed to air pollution and early in their lives, it affects their lungs and how they develop, and it actually makes them more, more prone to long-term lung conditions. Next slide. Um, so extreme weather events. So um, over the last decade, let's just see here, there's been more than 195, if I got that right, 93, disaster level extreme weather events in Canada. And um, there's insurance, the insurance policies, they say they used to pay out 500 million a year, now they're doing a billion dollars a year, or 100 million to, to one billion. Same with the uh, Can- the Canadian government is spending much more money on responding to disasters. And um, just in terms of like, what does that mean for health? It can require evacuations. People can be cut off from their power. New Brunswick, where they've had the flood, they said they were actually cut off from power, some people, for days and weeks. Some people were actually cut off from grocery stores and emergency services because their roads were flooded. They couldn't actually get to any services. And then you have power outages. Um, In New Brunswick, they actually heat their homes with electricity, so that's actually a real problem. But also you have things like fridges going and food spoiling. You have water being contaminated. And then after, with a flood, you can have houses getting and that can have other secondary health impacts. So all of these things, there's kind of this trickle down, there's all these little spin-offs from each of these things, different ways in which health can be impacted. So apparently with floods, it's the most common and the most expensive um, extreme events that happen in Canada, and wildfires, over the last three decades, more than half a million people have actually been evacuated from their homes for wildfires. So we're talking about something that's a really big deal. I wanted to see here. Um, I think that's it for now. Next slide. So vector-borne diseases, and I know, <laughs> I know I had my communications person say, don't say vector, but it's vector, it's mosquitoes, it's ticks, it's rats, it's mice, and um, any kind of animal. So what we are seeing right now is because the climate is becoming warmer, it's it's easier for certain kinds of insects and ticks and things to spread, but it also means that that cold weather, uh, winter weather actually kills off diseases that they carry. So what we're seeing now in the last number of years was we've now got Lyme disease spreading across. It has been seen in Manitoba. And we now have West Nile virus. Um, We didn't see any cases before 2002, and now we have over 6,000 cases. And again, both of these have been seen in Manitoba. Next slide. And just on that point, they are saying that we could actually see some more exotic um, insect-borne diseases over the coming years, like malaria and dengue fever could actually be introduced in time to Canada as as our climate warms. Next slide. Thank you. The other thing is food and water security. So think about it. Up in the far north, where you've got a lot of people who live off the land, what's happening now is that as the permafrost is melting and ice roads are melting, people are having a hard time accessing food that's on the land. The other thing that's happening is that those sometimes those ice roads and the permafrost are needed to transport food from the south. So that's becoming problematic. But you also have a kind of as I was mentioning earlier, some populations are disappearing or being affected like salmon and caribou in the north. Um, so I think that's and I guess the other thing is that just with droughts we're starting to affect our water supplies and, and how our crops actually do. Next slide. So the other, the other risk factor that hasn't been studied as much as some of these other things are mental health. And what people are finding is that this actually might be the one that's affecting more of us than we realize. So the studies that have been done are saying that when you have extreme weather events or a wildfire like Fort McMurray, that you're actually seeing substantial kind of increase in mental health impacts in the people who are exposed. So a study just came out this week that actually looked at high school students and they found a very high, high school students in Fort McMurray, kind of several years after their wildfire experience and they found very high levels among those kids of post-traumatic stress disorder, of anxiety and substance abuse. And they were kind of attributing it to the trauma they experienced with wildfires. Also, think about people in um, New Brunswick and Ottawa, where a lot of people are are at risk of losing their houses to floods. Think about the stress. And I I know when I was kind of uh, in Ottawa earlier this year, I had a taxi driver saying he had a friend who didn't have insurance on her house. And so for her, she's now lost her house entirely. So think about the stress that's being caused by people who are thinking of losing their houses, or they might lose their communities. In New Brunswick and some other communities in Quebec, they're actually talking about... um, having to move communities, like just like, give people a payout and move their, their community because they, they're just gonna keep getting flooded. Um, and the other thing is just even climate variability, and I'm sure all of you have heard this in your own life, and certainly in northern communities, communities that are closer to the land, they're feeling this more so, particularly in north where it, the, the warming is happening faster. But I know for me, I have a 20-year-old son, and he's despairing about the future. He's telling me he's not gonna have kids um, if he doesn't see some sort of significant change in policies from governments. Um, so, I, I don't but you folks, I'm actually hearing this from a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s. I think people are scared about the future. And I have to say, I feel that, like, just even when I said earlier about we're getting all these hot, humid days in summer, I just, I, I feel sad, I feel some grief, and it seems like such a little thing, but I feel some sadness, I used to look forward to summer, now I just feel like I, I don't even want to go outside. But people are feeling, that's like a little thing, people are feeling things like they're seeing their communities disappear, they're, they can't live off the land the way they used to, that kind of thing. Next slide. So the other thing with climate change is it amplifies all of our health inequities. The people who are most vulnerable in our society to begin with are usually the ones that are most heavily impacted. So a few examples, people low income in the city of Toronto, we have all these big tall cement towers in downtown Toronto that tend to house a lot of the low income populations in Toronto. And a lot of those apartments do not have air conditioning. So imagine being in downtown Toronto with you know, 30 days, over 30 degrees, and you're living in an apartment where you have no air conditioning. And then you don't, you know, because you're a low income person, maybe you don't have any friends who have pools, and you don't have a pool to go to, maybe you don't have any green space to go to. So that's kind of how you start to see this amplified. And of course, people living on the street, people who are homeless are gonna be very heavily impacted. And again, what we know with many things, the elderly in our society, which I keep saying and I realize I'm actually kind of getting into that group myself, but the elderly in our society and the very young in our society are always more vulnerable to things like extreme heat and air pollution. We just don't deal with it as well. And the same for people who have chronic diseases. If you have heart disease or respiratory diseases, you're much more vulnerable to those kinds of extremes. Next slide. So. In 2015, and I'm going to go a little faster here, but in 2015, our Canadian government made, made some commitment. It's an old commitment. It was very conservative. It wasn't very ambitious. And what you can see on this graph, if we were to look at it carefully, is that we are far from achieving that target, even though it was very conservative. And I do actually believe this federal government tried to achieve it. I think that um, you know they, they have actually tried to do it, but we are a long way from it, and we know that we have to go much deeper if we're going to meet the one5 Next page. One of the things I see in Twitter all the time is people say, oh, Ken is only responsible for 1.7% of the greenhouse gases. Why should we have to make sacrifices? Hey, folks, for 30 years, we've been in the top 10 emitters for the, for the world. We are not one of, the, one of the small players. We are a big player, and we just don't recognize it. Next slide. On a per-person basis, we are in the top, with three or, three or four other countries, we are the top emitters. On a per-person basis, we emit more greenhouse gases in a year than all the other countries around the world, us and a few other countries. Now, some of that's us and our lifestyle and our, you know, geography and everything. And some of it is the sectors that contribute to emissions across our country that kind of gets loaded onto our average. Next page. So who are, where are our sources of, of, of um, What are our sources in Canada? If you look at the uh, blue line there, that's kind of continuing to go up from 1990 all the way into 2030, that's the oil and gas sector. Not the use of it, the extraction of it. Uh, What you can see is the brown line that's going along with that, that's kind of steadily increasing, but looks like it's going to come down over the next coming years, that's transportation. So these are the sectors that we need to do something about. And the red one that you see kind of goes up and down, that's the electricity sector. And the reason it's going down is because coal-fired power plants were phased out in Ontario, and that because they are being phased out in Alberta and across the country. Next slide. Whereas Manitoba, you guys are good players. You actually are responsible for a small amount of the emissions. If you look at you know, the sectors, it's agriculture, which is not a surprise, and transportation. Next slide. So what I want to talk about a little bit now is the good news. For me, the good news, and this is for us at CAPE and for health professionals. Several years ago, so the Lancet, um, again, that prestigious medical journal, they did two commissions on climate change several years ago. The first one said, oh my gosh, climate change is the biggest global threat of of the century. And then the second report came out and it said, wow, climate action should be seen as the greatest global health opportunity of this century. And they identified four different areas where if we were to take those actions to fight climate change, we would be producing significant health benefits at the same time immediately. And those were renewable energy, sustainable transportation, energy efficiency, and sustainable agriculture. Next slide. So the climate solutions with immediate health benefits, anything that improves uh, reduces air pollution. So we know um, that Fossil fuels, the burning of fossil fuels, is responsible for about 7,000 premature deaths from air pollution every year. So if we get rid of all the fossil fuels, we've just avoided, 7,000 premature deaths and all the other health impacts associated with them. And what things will get rid of, like reduce air pollution, that also, gets, that also reduces climate um, emissions, it's public transit, electrifying the transit system, electrifying our cars, cycling and walking, energy efficiency, renewable energy, like they're all there. Next slide. The other thing is that a number of the climate solutions will actually increase physical activity and we know that there's billions of dollars in health impacts across Canada every year because people in Canada are not physically active enough. So things like cycling and walking and the use of public transit will get people more physically active. So again, we're going to improve human health, we're going to cut healthcare costs and we're going to be fighting climate change at the same time. Next slide. This one here is the reducing meat consumption. Um, There's quite a bit of work that's been done that says that when we eat red meat, it actually contributes to cardiovascular disease and other chronic diseases, if we eat a lot of it. And that um, apparently the production of, of red meat actually produces a very significant kind of I don't know, tons of greenhouse gases, and so one of the things that we could do, again, is we don't have to give up red meat, but just even cutting back on on red meat, we would be reducing our contribution um, to climate change, but we would also at the same time be improving our health. Next slide. So I kind of want to have a few slides here that I just want to kind of talk about, because I know when I go through this, I feel like, and for people like my son, there are reasons for hope. I think we're in a pretty dire place. We really have to take action. And we need people to understand that we really need to take action. And we need our decision makers to do that. But there are some reasons for hope. And um, one of them is I think that health, health professionals are moving into the discussion and health organizations. So we've been working with these health organizations and we've got the CMA, the Canadian Medical Association weighing in. And we did this, well, and I'll, I'll kind of just talk about that. But well, The other thing we find is that when you talk about health The public, if they find with opinion polls, that um, people are more likely to change their behavior around climate change if they think it's going to benefit their health and the health of their families than for any other reason. So the fact that we've got health professionals weighing in, the public gets health, we think that's a really good thing. And I've done quite a bit of work where we've used health co-benefits to fight for environmental policies and we've seen it really work. And I think it's because it's local, it's immediate, and it's concrete. Whereas I think climate change sometimes feels a little bit big for people to get a grasp on. Next slide. So health organizations are engaging. So this year, uh, we produced this toolkit this year um, for health professionals. And we did that because we're being inundated with requests from doctors and medical students and public health professionals saying, I need to engage. And so we produced this toolkit to give them tools that they can kind of go out into their communities and their healthcare facilities and start to engage in the debate because they really want to do it. They're very worried about the future. And then the other thing we did this year, is we did a call to action on climate change and health. And we did it with the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Nurses Association, Association, and the Canadian Public Health Association. We released that in February, and we gave it to all the federal parties saying, we need to do something. And you all need to treat this as a nonpartisan issue. Climate change is not a partisan issue. It should be an issue for all of you. It should be in all of your platforms. So we wanted them to hear that from health professionals. Well, we've had 11 um, different health organizations who have joined on to our call to action since then, including some of the most conservative organizations in the country. And we're gonna re-release it in the fall with all of these new partners in there. But these are organizations that work across the country. They're, cons- you know, they, a lot of their members are quite conservative. They represent kind of every stripe of the, of the kind of political spectrum in Canada. Next slide. So, reasons for hope. Um, I was involved with the coal phase out in Ontario and in Alberta. And what I saw and what I learned from that is if you have a number of organizations working effectively together, strategically together, you can win big policies that have a huge impact. In Ontario, we actually were able to reduce greenhouse gases by 20%, and we actually produced $3 billion a year in health-related benefits by reducing air pollution. So that was like that was 15 or 20 health, you know, health and environmental groups working together like, over a period of time. Next slide. There's a number of new technologies and I'm not gonna go in here, I just took a few examples. I see them every week, I'm sure other people do too. Every week I see like new technologies are coming out, you know, electric, uh, electric transit buses. BC is gonna replace all of their transit buses with electric buses. In Scandinavia, they're, they're actually uh, starting to electrify their ferries. I've seen shipping, you know, the big ships that go across, the, they're, they're experimenting, they think in the next few years we'll have electric ships. So there's new technologies coming, which is very hopeful. Next, next slide, carbon-free electricity. Um, There was a, uh, like Scotland apparently they announced in July that the first six months of this year they produced more electricity with wind turbines than you would need twice the homes that they have in Scotland to use all the electricity they produce with their wind turbines. So I just think that's really cool. And then also in um, China, apparently there's 300 cities, more than 300 cities in China, where they're actually now producing electricity from solar systems for less money than they can produce electricity with coal. Now, China is one of the biggest emitters in the world, and coal is one of its biggest sources of climate emissions. Incredible news, like now all of a sudden, solar systems are becoming competitive with coal. This is fabulous news. Next page. So they're feasible. They're affordable. They're yeah. Um, they're they're getting their um, climate solutions are coming. We could use policies like our fossil fuel subsidies. We could redirect those to innovation to renewable energy, and we could move things along much faster. There's things that we can do. And then the next the next slide. This is my last slide, and I just want to say. This is not a technical problem. I'm not saying there aren't any technical problems. There are, but this isn't a technical problem. And it's not an affordability problem. It's a, it's a political problem. And in order to get the politicians to do the right thing, they need us to demand action. So I feel like for all of us, it's kind of in our control. We need to bring the public on board. We need the public to understand how urgently change is needed and then to understand and recognize the policies that are good policies. I guess I feel like what I've seen in some of the opinion polls here, you'll see that 80, over 80% of Canadians believe that climate change is a major threat to their grandchildren, the future of their children or grandchildren. So then why are we throwing out governments, that have really good climate policies. So there's some sort of disconnect. So I think there's a, that's kind of where we all have to focus. We have a job to educate the public, so they demand the right thing of our politicians and our decision makers. And that's it. If you would just go to the next slide. I'll just, there's, and then the last slide. Just, uh, just um, the next slide, that's okay. Thank you, and there, just all our information, if you want to see our information. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Kim Parada from Cape. Um, I think we just need to all take a collective deep breath. That was a lot to take in. It's a lot to unpack, but we're going to do our best. And just a reminder, uh, you can submit your questions on Slido if you go to Slido.com and go to hashtag WPGVitalSigns to do that. Or raise your hand if you want to submit a question via paper. Okay, let's bring our uh, let's bring our distinguished panel into the discussion. Uh, I will sort of reintroduce them and remind you uh, who we have here. Uh, In the middle, we have Heather Mitchell. She's the Sustainable Transportation Coordinator for Winnipeg's Green Action Center. She is responsible for organizing and facilitating presentations to diverse audiences, including in the classroom on active transportation and air quality, and to parents, parent councils, school administrations, and school boards as well. She also plays a key role in promoting and supporting Go Manitoba, which is an online transportation tool that helps Manitobans travel sustainably by matching carpool partners and bike or bus buddies. So if you download the app, it's called Go Manitoba in your app store. It's actually pretty cool. I just got it today. It's a nice little thing. So Go Manitoba, grab grab that app. On the far, your far right is Dr. Ian Morrow. He's the principal of the Richardson College for the Environment and is the executive director of the Prairie Climate Centre at the University of Winnipeg. He's an environmental and social scientist, a filmmaker and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada's College of New Scholars, Artists and Scientists. He has worked extensively on climate change, food security and resource development issues all across Canada. So let's re-welcome our panelists with a nice round of applause here. So first, we'll go to Heather. What is your impression of what you've heard from Kim? Just uh, give us some thoughts about uh, where you're coming from and and what you thought.
4: Okay, perfect. Um, Firstly, I want to thank Kim for being here tonight um, and sharing your knowledge and experience advancing climate change awareness and illuminating its impacts on human health. Um, I'm going to take back a lot of what you talked about tonight um, and apply it to work. the work that I do. I find when it comes to sustainable transportation, a lot of my messaging focuses on uh, local and direct health impacts of driving, like uh, air pollution and physical activity, um, but not as much on the impacts of climate change itself on our health. Um, with respect to global impacts here in Winnipeg and how that's going to affect us as we, uh, if we continue as the status quo. I'm also reminded of uh, the privileges I've had in my life and I feel a sense of refreshed motivation to work as hard as I can to help create similar opportunities for future generations. My interest in the work that I do started from a young age spending hours, endless hours outdoors playing with frogs and insects and biking to school with my friends and I want youth today to live in a healthy and happy and clean environment and not have to carry such a heavy burden of climate change. Um, And I work very closely with youth all the time and though I may feel a sense of disappointment with sort of the state of where we are. Um, I'm also very hopeful. I'm constantly inspired by the know-how of youth and their enthusiasm, and I feel very confident that if we continue to create awareness for these important topics and provide tools and resources and and foster a sense of empowerment, um, we'll see this and future generations uh, turn things around.
0: Thank you, Heather. Uh, Ian, if, give us your impressions on, uh, on the presentation. Uh,
5: I wanna thank our elder before she leaves um, for asking us to kind of rethink our relationship with the earth. What Kim has presented is a profoundly disturbing trajectory here for humanity and the ecosystems that support us. And what is required is a wholesale rethinking of how we live uh, on the planet and that is not some sort of romantic idea that is something that we absolutely have to figure out structurally how to build into our daily lives but our systems as human beings on the planet and that is a tall task and i i'm usually the one giving these presentations and when you're talking out loud and you're kind of rattling off the statistics you're sometimes not even absorbing what you're saying and In a sense, I'm sitting here in an existential crisis. And and I say that probably like many of you thinking, like, really? Is that really where we're at? And I say that not just because of what Kim said, but because my 10-year-old daughter came home from school yesterday. She's in grade five. And she told me that her teacher told her about climate change. And she knows, my kids know that, oh, dad works on climate change. And it could be like, you know, anything, they don't understand it. And I've not shielded them from it, but it's, it's a hard thing to talk about. And she came home asking, you know, my teacher told me that in hundreds of years, we will not be able to live on this planet. I just want you to think about that for a second. This is what our young children are hearing about their future. And I think the health dimension of it changes the conversation. It absolutely changes the conversation because we're not talking about stats about the atmosphere. We're talking about our lived experience as individuals, families, and as communities. And if we can't rally around literally our existence, I'm not sure what we can rally around.
0: Well said, Ian. Okay, now we're gonna go to the screen for a couple quick polls. So if you wanna participate in the Slido polls and see kind of where we're at when it comes to uh, your current level of knowledge when it comes to, and I think if we have a volunteer to help out in that back row there, that would be great. Yeah, just raise your hand if you need a hand with the Slido stuff. So we've got our question up there. Before today's presentation, were you aware of the range of health risks associated with climate change? Simple yes or no response, and then we'll get, the, uh, we'll get the percentages up there, I think. Again, before today's presentation, were you aware of the range of health risks associated with climate change? Yes or no? Looks like 49 people, 51 have logged in. Oh, there it is. So, two-thirds about have been aware of the health risks. I think what it is, is just the scope. That was for me, at least. I knew that there were health risks, but it's certainly the scope of things and sort of where we're at, and especially the trajectory of where we're headed as well. So it's good to sort of get a little bit more context about where we're headed and how we can curb and turn things around a little bit. We're gonna do a follow-up question as well. So the next question that should be appearing on your Slido, what impact of health What impact of climate change are you most concerned about regarding your health? Now, you can choose one, multiple ones, or all of the above if you want. So there's A, vector-borne diseases, B, respiratory health, C, heat exhaustion and stroke, D, food security, E, water security, F, stress, or you can consider that the mental health component, G, other if you want to fill one in, or H, all of the above. And we'll start to get some percentages on that one as well. Are we gonna get the percentages, Robert? Can we get the percentages? There it is, water security, okay. Oh, it's gone. Looked like water security was first. Oh, there's, Well, you can see the old one too. Thank you all for answering. Um, We'll have all this information on our website afterwards as well for you to peruse and sort of revisit at your leisure. So now we're gonna turn to our panelists and hear a little bit more in depth about what Heather and Ian uh, are all about on a local level. So Heather Mitchell is up first. She's from the Green Action Center. Her day job is all about encouraging Winnipeggers to engage in sustainable transportation options. And we know from Winnipeg's vital signs that residential vehicles are one of the major sources of greenhouse gas emissions. So Heather, what can you tell us about the work that you're doing and what's happening happening locally here in Winnipeg? If you wanna come up and- Great, give a round of applause for Heather, Heather, please.
4: Uh, Thank you, Nolan. Uh, Before I begin, I'd like to thank the Winnipeg Foundation for hosting this important event. Uh, Conversations like these cannot be overlooked, so thank you for being a leader in our community. I'd also like to thank each and every one of you who made it out tonight, and to participate in this vital conversation. Your ongoing support, desire to learn, and willingness to be environmental stewards in our community should not go unrecognized. We may come from different backgrounds and sectors, but we ultimately face climate change together. I think most of us can agree that the consequences of climate change are frightening and the amount of work needed to minimize these impacts can seem overwhelming. While it's positive that a consensus is forming in Canada around the need to act urgently and the risks of doing nothing, Rather than further stoking fears about the future, I'd like to use my brief time with you this evening to instill some hope about the role that you can play in uh, taking action to fight climate change. As mentioned earlier, my name is Heather Mitchell and I work with Green Action Center, a leading environmental nonprofit that has been advancing environmental education and sustainable living in Manitoba for over 30 years. With our history, connections, and impact over the last 30 years, Green Action Center recognizes the important role that we play in being a leader for climate action in Manitoba. After reading the United Nations' IPCC report released in 2018 identifying the urgency required to act to avoid the most destructive consequences of climate change, we knew it was time to do more. This was the reason why Green Action Center joined forces with several other local non-governmental organizations including Climate Change Connection, Wilderness Committee Manitoba, Manitoba Energy Justice Coalition, and Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives Manitoba to create the Climate Action Team. Through a collaborative project called Road to Resilience, which is supported by the Winnipeg Foundation, the Climate Action Team's goal is to foster conversations and lead people to act. We want to help people feel like there's realistic actions and solutions and increase our resilience to what's coming. Though Green Action Center does a lot of general environmental advocacy, our focus areas include waste reduction and sustainable transportation. I work under the sustainable transportation umbrella of Green Action, San- and Green Action Center, advocating for both children and adults alike to transition to a greener and healthier modes of transportation for their daily commutes to school and work. Green Action Center has intentionally selected transportation as a focus area due to the direct impact individuals are able to have on both the environment and their health. I wanna take this opportunity to connect the dots between transportation, health, and the environment. As mentioned earlier, transportation is one of the largest sources of greenhouse gas emissions in Manitoba with respect to moving both people and goods. With almost 80% of Winnipeg driving alone to work each day, we're seeing more cars on the road, heavier traffic congestion, and idling at peak times of the day. As our population continues to grow, so will congestion and emissions unless we drastically change our behavior in urban design. It should also be noted that high vehicle ridership significantly impacts Winnipeg's budget. Wear and tear on roads is greater with heavy traffic, increasing road repair and maintenance costs. Not to mention the sheer spending to date on new roads and related infrastructure to driving. A study has found that driving in Canada has a net loss to society of 10 cents per kilometer and costs an individual roughly 87 cents per kilometer. This is money that could be otherwise invested to improve environmental and health outcomes in our communities. With more than 80% of Canadians now living in urban areas, reliable public, public transit along with active and shared transportation options have never been better investments. To reduce our carbon footprint, we need to transition to lower emitting modes of transportation. This includes a hierarchy of options, walking, cycling, public transit, carpooling, and car sharing. Making walking and cycling easier and desirable is a great climate response. However, people will only make the shift if they believe infrastructure is safe. This is why it's important to invest in measures such as traffic calming, road design, and separated and protected bike lanes, especially in urban areas. The city of Winnipeg has certainly made leaps when it comes to building active transportation infrastructure, and I hope we continue to push ourselves to bigger and better things. A study between Bike Winnipeg and CAA Manitoba in 2018 found almost half of Winnipegers would bike daily or a few times a week if infrastructure was safer. That's a large potential of our population that we could be reaching and transitioning if we continue to invest in the necessary infrastructure. Increasing transit ridership is another proven approach to reducing transportation related emissions. Cities with high quality and reliable transit service typically have a lower transportation carbon footprint per capita. Studies have found that a typical household can reduce its energy consumption and emissions by about 45% by shifting from vehicle to public transit. Investing in Winnipeg transit and increasing ridership will be an important part of our equation to solve climate change. In areas where there is limited or no transit service and distances are too long, carpooling becomes the only realistic option for reducing emissions. This is why Green Action Center was excited to launch Go Manitoba in 2017. Go Manitoba is a free tool and online app that connects people from across the province to find matches for carpooling to work or school using algorithms that match you based on your location and your timeframe. Go Manitoba is your one-stop shop transportation tool where you can also find matches for transit and cycling mentors, look for different routes to work or school, and track your savings and emissions reductions. I also want to acknowledge Peg City Car Co-op who has implemented implemented a successful car sharing program in Winnipeg. Car sharing is an important initiative to reduce our dependence on personal vehicle ownership. It starts an important conversation around needing to own a vehicle, when instead you could rely on alternative modes of transportation most of the time and use and rent a vehicle only when you need to. Car sharing is a good reminder that how we travel doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing situation that can be very overwhelming for people. People tend to think of the transition to buying a very expensive bike and the high-tech gadgets and a spandex outfit and biking across the city to work five or or more days a week. Um, But it doesn't need to be complicated. Transitioning to sustainable transportation can be utilizing a range of different modes some of the time. Can you imagine the immediate difference we could make if everyone who drives to work alone every day right now tried walking, cycling, busing, or carpooling even just part of the way three times a week? In order to see wider adoption of greener and healthier transportation, we need to see more investments, but we also need a normalization of sustainable transportation in society. We must move away from preconceived notions, biases, and mental roadblocks that reinforce a dependency on personal vehicles. Based on our organization's experience running programs like Commuter Challenge and Bike to School Month, We have found that people tend to be open to adopting new modes of transportation once they've been exposed to them. People have been pleasantly surprised at how easy and enjoyable it is, especially when they don't have to worry about driving in traffic or finding parking. It should also be noted that it's not just a matter of choosing a different way of getting around, it's a matter of improving our built environment so that walking, cycling, and public transit is the easiest, cheapest, and most desirable way to get around. Walkable spaces allow people to connect with their communities and enable cities to thrive. We can reduce injuries and unnecessary deaths with slower speeds and street calming interventions. If we continue to design for and prioritize vehicles over people, we are not doing our part to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and tackle the climate crisis. Notably, sustainable transportation is not just good for the environment, it's also good for our health and Kim touched a lot on that this evening. And I'm gonna focus on transportation with respect to air pollution and increased physical activity. Although Winnipeg is in the low risk zone, air pollution is a serious global issue that requires global action. Um, The World Health Organization has said that 91% of people worldwide do not breathe safe air. And as Kim mentioned, a child's exposure to pollution can have lifelong health effects, which is one of the many reasons why Green Action Center advocates for students to walk and bike to school as part of our Active and Safe Routes to School program. Currently, we find the majority of students in Winnipeg are arriving to school by vehicle, which is resulting in heavy traffic congestion, idling, and dangerous driving behavior around schools. With so much traffic, it's not only nerve-wracking for students that do walk and bike to navigate their community safely, but as shown in a study out of the University of Toronto, students are also being exposed to extremely high levels of air pollution around drop-off zones, especially in winter, as a result of our car-dominant habits. And it's not just limited to those outdoors either. Studies from the UK and the Netherlands have found that children are at an even higher risk of exposure to air pollution inside of cars. Scientists have long agreed that air pollution damages children's health and their lungs and then increases the risk to asthma, but recent research also indicates that it can impair a child's ability to learn and may deteriorate their DNA. If we transition students who live nearby their schools to walk and bike instead of arriving there by vehicle, by supporting them and their families and their schools, we can significantly reduce children's exposure to air pollution. It is well documented that both Canadian adults and children are not getting the recommended amount of physical activity they need and that physical activity reduces many health risks. This is a key part of our messaging at Green Action Center in both our Workplace Commuter Options Program and Active and Safe Routes to School program. Employers can largely influence the health and well being of their employees by promoting a workplace culture that encourages sustainable transportation to work. Those who walk and bike to work have reported improved concentration, stamina, and memory, and increased energy and positive mental health. The Public Health Agency of Canada states work performance improves up to 15% amongst physically active people as well. It should be noted that the health benefits are not only attributed to active transportation, but are also extended to taking public transit as well. Research has found that people people who take public transit are less likely to be overweight, have high blood pressure, and diabetes compared to people who drive. Green Action Center's Workplace Commuter Option Program works with businesses and employers to make sustainable transportation both appealing and within reach. There are many initiatives that a workplace can implement, such as installing secure bike parking, um, subsidized transit passes, designated car parking spots, and much more. Efforts made by each individual workplace and employee coupled by built environment that supports sustainable transportation will increase access to physical activity and improve health outcomes. When compared to those who are driven to school, students that walk and bike are more active, getting as much as 45 additional minutes of physical activity per day. Active school travel is associated with many mental health benefits for children, as well as improved focus, problem-solving skills, and better grades in school. Our active and safe routes to school program focuses on education and encouragement to improve active school travel rates and physical activity in children. With initiatives such as the Bicycle Education and Skills Training Program in the Seven Oaks School Division that teaches on road cycling to students during phys ed classes, and events like Walktober and Bike to School Month and Clean Air Day, where thousands of students across Manitoba try and celebrate walking and biking to school each year. The benefits of using sustainable transportation are endless and interconnected. The burning question is, will we change? Our answer is yes. We are already seeing governments, corporations, and even the media take action and working like never before to reduce emissions. We've seen a huge movement from youth, with thousands of students across the world striking and sharing their voice, including right here in Winnipeg. On Friday, September 27th, there will be a global climate strike that is expected to be be the biggest yet. And this time, youth are asking businesses and adults to join them. No matter where you come from or what sector you represent, we all have to do our part. Why? Because our world depends on it. Thank you for listening and contributing to a healthier future.
0: Hello. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Heather. Heather Mitchell, and we had Kim Parada. All afternoon, I was just like, don't say Kim Mitchell, don't say Kim Mitchell, don't say Kim Mitchell, don't say Kim Mitchell. So glad so far I haven't. So up next is uh, Dr. Ian Morrow. He is an environmental and social scientist, and he's worked extensively on climate change, food security, and resource development issues all across Canada. I also understand that uh, you and the Prairie Climate Centre have begun to work with Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada on this very topic. So I understand you've got a bit of a website to show us and you're going to kind of talk us about ca- the Climate Atlas, but what can you share with us tonight, Ian? Let's give uh, Ian a round of applause, please.
5: Hi, everybody. I'm just waiting to get on the U of M guest. Um, internet and it was working when we started this but it is not right now so give me one second Um, but while i'm doing this i can um, certainly uh, give you some context about the prairie climate center and so uh, at the prairie climate center we're really interested in trying to create an opportunity for canadians to better understand um, the way in which uh, climate change affects Our well-being in a way that's not the kind of stats and numbers and figures that I think Kim was alluding to um, that that kind of haven't gotten us where we need to go in that public policy space um, because it's it's been confusing and there has been a deliberate kind of effort to make it confusing in a sense Uh, guys in the back I'm ready to go there um, in terms of the screen and so uh, we've been really interested in trying to uh, take this complex issue and and, and make it real and in a sense democratize the data, democratize the information, make sure that we can have fulsome discussions about this in a way that, that ask and call upon us to have that kind of existential crisis. And by the way, I'm over it right now. Um, I wanna talk about the options. I wanna talk about the solutions. I wanna talk about the opportunities that we have to get this right. And part of what we've done at the Prairie Climate Centre, which is at the University of Winnipeg, is develop the Climate Atlas of Canada. And so until very recently, we simply didn't have the data in the hands of the public, in the hands of decision makers in a way that was accessible. And So we developed this. There's an amazing team at the University of Winnipeg um, that has constructed this. And if you go to climateatlas.ca, you can scroll down. We've updated the data. We're working in partnership with Environment Canada and other federal partners, and this is one of a very few number of tools in the country that actually has that that stamp of approval on it. This is the best climate data that we understand. In the country, and we have kind of intro materials. We onboard people. We're interested in creating a dialogue that meets people where they're at because if we talk around people or we talk over people's heads or we talk in ways that are cryptic and jargon-laden academically, that's obviously a problem, and so you can read more. There's very beginner kind of intro articles. When we launched the Atlas about a year and a half ago, we had a focus on Canadian cities, and we know that most of the people in Canada are in Canadian cities. We know that the media is in Canadian cities, and when we launched the Atlas, we had these reports and so essentially you can go anywhere in the country and you can click on a report and it will tell you about the major climate data uh, about that area. About a week and a half, we, we launched the Heat Waves and Health Report, uh, and this is a report that with that funding from Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada and our partnerships with Environment Canada, we have been uh, blessed with the opportunity to engage with people like Kim. We went to Kim's house in the middle of summer and started talking with her. We went and interviewed doctors, palliative care specialists, uh, physiologists working on the future heat waves and how our bodies will respond and the cooling interventions required. And if you take a look at that, There's data about the country, there's solutions in there, there's simple stuff that we can do to protect our families, but also there's systemic things that we can start to look at to address this. And these are things that we need to have accessible to people so that they can prepare at the individual level, but also at the community level. And for us at the Prairie Climate Center, we want to empower communities with the tools that they require to actually make informed decisions and start that planning process. So I'm going to take you into the map in a second, but we have this planning for climate change section, and so there's actual a design here. How do we design our communities so that they look different, so that they're safer, so that there's shade, so that there's you know uh, all kinds of opportunities for carbon capture um, in our in our cities, and so we're working with the city planners and and the Canadian Institute of Planners. We're working with architects. Uh, we have a topical structure so you can kind of explore it in terms of the area that you're interested in for example, if we kind of jump into agriculture uh, as a place, we're here in Manitoba, uh, we have a large agricultural community, we want to have a conversation with farmers about what this looks like. And so we've interviewed, you know, farmers that are 90 years old and talked about what are the changes you've seen in your lifetime? And let's not talk about climate change through my lens as a scientist, but through your lens as a farmer and your lived experience. And that categorically changes the way that people ingest the information because the dialogue is on on, on the, the terms of care community, Talking about, you know, farming with farmers all over the country, risk maps, uh, energy, emissions, agriculture, the importance of gender in agriculture, women buffering risk on farms, helping make sure that the farm kind of goes around when, you know, often men are out in the fields or with the animals and 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 women are there, backstops to the kind of social and emotional health of the farms. Amber Fletcher at the University of Regina does this work. Um, looking at, you know, red meat, but also the opportunities of farming to make a contribution, carbon sequestration on rangelands and with with farmers and so there's lots of opportunities there Um, and we always end the section with take action so things that you can do to kind of get informed I also want to acknowledge the government of Manitoba in terms of its leadership in terms of supporting this work and uh, I want to kind of show you quickly um, this is the atlas so when you jump into the climate atlas of Canada It is literally a fully interactive functional uh, map that you can scroll around in. Many of you who we've worked with will know of this tool. For those of you that don't, this is, again, the best available climate data. And then these play buttons, I've been making films with communities across Canada for over a decade. Uh, I started in the Arctic, and my journey into climate change, um, I I made the world's first Inuktitut language film with a guy named Zach Kunuk, who made Atanajo at the Fast Runner, which is considered to be one of the most important films ever made. And we were living in the Arctic, I'd spent a lot of time up there, and I've literally watched the Arctic melt with my own eyes, and I've been going up there for about 20 years. When you think about these elders, when you think about the people that have lived there, the things that they have seen, you know, these are fundamental shifts in the way of life. And from there, went into Atlantic Canada and made a film and there's, you know, talk of relocation that Kim was talking about. There's communities there that are actually facing sea level rise that might literally force them to move. And they're having serious conversations with the federal government around what that would look like. But also stories of hope and solution. And when you go around here, there's all kinds of interesting stories of renewables and and the things that communities are doing, which are, you know, truly inspiring. And when we get into Winnipeg, you know, you can click on and look at one of the biggest solar installations in Manitoba. Fort White alive Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity to kind of see those stories of resilience and see what people are doing to address these issues but there are some hard realities here and so the map that we're currently looking at is the number of heat waves and so Kim had mentioned heat wave data she was actually showing some of the data from the atlas in her presentation and we thank her for kind of showing that Um, but if you take a look at the baseline a heat wave the way we define it from the report that we released a couple weeks ago is three or more consecutive days of plus 30 and in the baseline period in Winnipeg, you know, we have a a hot climate. We're an interior continental climate. We're used to, you know, plus 30 days. And so on average, it's about two plus 30 days in that high carbon far future, that could jump up by six, so six or more plus 30 days consecutively, uh, or, or six bouts of three or more plus 30 days consecutively. And so these heat heat waves are, are are a serious thing that we need to to think about, consider, and plan for. And so this is a, a, a essentially a diagnostic tool for the country. When you think about literally being able to go anywhere in the country and drill down on that information, it's 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 very helpful. When we look at, for example, so these menus you can go into, and we've got the number of heat waves here, the number of plus 30 days. So the number of plus 30 days in Winnipeg on average in the baseline period is about 14 plus 30 days and in that high carbon far future, so these sliders here on the bottom allow you to kind of get, look at more climate change over different time periods. We could jump up by almost 40 plus 30 days uh, in an average summer and have, you know, literally almost two months of plus 30 in uh, an average summer in Winnipeg. And when you scroll down here and you look at these curves, there's a little bit more information here this is an ensemble of 24 climate models and again I'm saying we talk in you know value jargonless terms well that may sound very jargony but we the best climate models in the country and in the world are kind of drilled into this thing and on the extreme side of the climate models you know in a very extremely hot year it could be upwards of 80 plus 30 days here so think about that for a second that's in the next generation That's our kids' future. And again, this isn't to scare people, this is to mobilize people to think about, and when we go to this slider here, less carbon, less greenhouse gases. How can we drive that curve down? And so the Atlas allows us to literally contemplate these futures, literally think through them for every part of the country. And so, you know, we don't escape the heat that would be coming, but we can drive it down. And so there's a really important message there is that we can mitigate greenhouse gases, we can bring the curve down, but given the emissions that we have already released into the atmosphere, we are going to be living with the realities of climate change no matter what. And so that's where this idea of adaptation comes in. How do we prepare for the heat? How do we prepare for the change that is undoubtedly going to affect us? And so that's something that I find very interesting because these are real things that we can do in our individual lives, in our community lives. And one of the interesting things that we've done here uh, in in Manitoba specifically, if I kind of take us back out, is uh, back into the planning section, and again, this is literally designed for how do we get planners in communities across the country thinking through these issues. We worked with the community of Selkirk and the city of Selkirk here, uh, I'm literally downloading this live, uh, has developed a climate change adaptation strategy with our support. And this climate change adaptation strategy literally uh, contemplates these climate futures and develops a systematic plan for how the community of Selkirk will respond to this. And it's an interesting approach where it's collaboration. It's co-design. It is building a methodology for how we avert these kinds of issues. There's guiding principles. We take people through and this is a public facing document so citizens of Selkirk can say okay this is what climate change is. Very readable, very accessible but as we kind of scroll through and I'm doing this intentionally because it literally is something that is accessible to all communities. We can start to do this work. These are the people at Selkirk that actually sat around a table with us to develop this plan and one of the interesting things is that there's this global issue of climate change but we need to localize the data. And once we localize the data, we need to think through it seasonally. And Selkirk said to us, you know, we operate seasonally here. We think through spring, you know, summer, winter, fall, Uh, not in that order, obviously. And um, we, we need to consider how that affects our services. And so global to local, to season, to service area. And so we sat around with these people in these different, uh, you know, parts of the city where they develop literally these kind of service areas. And I just want to kind of quickly show you this climate change adaptation cycle, how we kind of think about planning and we scope out risk and we develop kind of plans. And, and I'll, I'll kind of take you through literally this kind of seasonal approach that they have here. And we literally workshop this out with them um, and they sat around with us and we broke apart the risks. We thought about it—you know the consequences, the impacts, what the likelihoods of things would be. And we developed these risk matrices. Again, it's a, a, a participatory process of understanding how a community would face these risks. But then they were able to prioritize them. And if you take a look at the top priority of a place like Selkirk, when you talk to these municipal people thinking about the future of their community, Physical heat stress jumps out as the number one priority for what to do. And so when we break it out by municipal service areas, they've got their recreation department, that kind of green uh, forested area, thinking about water, how are we gonna deal with this? And I could scroll through, but I won't. They came up with a real serious plan about how to address this. And when you kind of go further into this thing, they broke out these very specific practical tactics that they then fold into their municipal budgeting process. And in the gold standard of climate adaptation, how you do this, people talk about mainstreaming. How do you get climate change in the daily business of everything that we do? How do we fold it in so that it's not this special interest group or a special committee that has to do it but every part of our society and every institution that we have is thinking through these things so that it becomes second nature and it gets mainstreamed. Well they actually figured out a way to do it and they've built it into their budgeting process and so this year we finished this process with them in the spring. They had a tree inventory program where they're going out and actually cataloging all the trees in their community so that they know which trees are there, which trees could potentially die off because of emerald ash borer, which we know is devastating our forests all over the country because of climate change. And, you know, what do we need to do to rethink the forested area of the city so that we have shade? so that we can prevent that heat stress, so that we can drive carbon emissions into the trees in our city. And it's a really practical example of the kinds of things that communities can do to really start to think through not only the consequences, but the opportunities to actually plan and adapt. And this is the meat and potatoes kind of action that we are innovating on here in Winnipeg. And I don't mean to be kind of, you know, uh, bragging, but we've created something that the country is seriously looking at and people are using to navigate through this. And we're like literally like six people to eight people in a university office at the University of Winnipeg. When we talk about the networks we can build and the partnerships we can build to actually tackle this stuff at scale, it is totally possible. It requires investments from government. It requires that political will. And one thing, just responding to Kim's earlier comments, it requires a wholesale culture shift in the way that we think about ourselves, our communities, and that relationship with the earth. And, and dear Elder, you, you walked away kind of as I was kind of thanking you. That, 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 that I, But to, to kind of bring you back in, it is seriously about rethinking our relationship with the earth. It is a fundamental shift that has to happen culturally in our hearts here right now, but outwardly in every interaction when we have. It's mainstreaming it in our institutions, but it's also mainstreaming it in our core as human beings around what kind of future we want to leave to our kids. And if we do that, and we build those kind of connections as humans, we can absolutely solve this. The tools are there, it's just a matter of whether or not we have the will to follow that future out and make sure our kids are safe.
0: Thank you so much, Ian. Wonderful. Wonderful. I just want to do a little personal plug here, because Ian is the next guest on the Because and Effect podcast coming out this Tuesday. We go real deep. Uh, It was a pleasure to talk to him. And you can tell by his, um, you know, his energy and his uh, optimism that it's a really good conversation. And it actually put to rest a lot of my anxiety, not put to rest, but definitely soothed a lot of my anxieties because there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. So uh, if you want to hear more from Ian, you can listen to the Because and Effect podcast on Tuesday. Speaking of uh, phones, you can take out your phones. We're going to do another uh, Slido poll here if you want to log back into Slido on your mobile devices. We're going to do one more question, and then we're going to get to some audience questions as well. We have a couple that have already been submitted, so thank you very much for submitting those. So the next question that you get to vote in is what do you do now to help fight climate change? You can answer one or more. Uh, There's a whole bunch of different options here. Advocate for the environment. Uh, Discuss climate change with friends and relatives. Use public transit or bike and walk when you can. Buy local or secondhand sustainably made products. Avoid disposable single-use plastics. Live close to where you work if you can. And eat a plant-based diet or plant-rich diet to reduce meat consumption. If you want to just vote for those, and then we'll start throwing up our percentages there as well. Once we see some percentages, we'll get to an audience question from Slido. So if you You can can see on Slido, there's the tab where it says polls and questions near the top. If you go to questions and haven't submitted your question yet, you can do so by pushing the little green button on the bottom or type to ask your question right in there. So we're going to try to get to as many questions as we can with the time that we have allotted, but we have a few already submitted, so thank you very much for your questions. Once we see some percentages here, then we'll switch over to some audience questions. Right, so looks like a lot of people here are doing what they can when it comes to help flighting climate change. Obviously, thank you for that. There's a lot more that we can be doing, but it's good to see that the people in this room are trying to do their part. Uh, it's good to see. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of people here that already feel strongly about this issue for supporting this event tonight, but thank you very much for everything that you're doing. Now, we'll go to the audience question. So the first question we have was submitted by an anonymous person, so thank you for that. The question is, uh, What are to the panel and to uh, Kim, what are your suggested first steps that businesses can do that are wanting to make a difference in climate change?
3: I'm happy to leave this one to the other panelists. <laughs>
5: Uh, I think one of the biggest things is to be part of the conversation and again when you look at the economics of where this is going this affects the economy it affects businesses affects commerce and when the business community steps up and says we want action that's an influential voice and just recently there was a coalition of I can't remember literally like 50 or 60 businesses and what was it? Ninety. Ninety. I I, I saw early letters when it was around 50 or 60. Ninety businesses in Manitoba that were saying they want bold climate action because they know this could affect their bottom line. and, And that voice is an important voice. And so I think speaking out, but also, again, looking at your bottom line and saying, what do I need to do when there's, you know... 77 plus 30 days in an extreme year, and how am I gonna make sure my air conditioning and all of that stuff is set up so that my costs are down? Because when you save money, uh, because you're getting climate ready, you're doing things that might make you more profitable and actually protect the environment. It's like the health co-benefits. This stuff is not rocket science. We just need to dig deep and make the right choices.
0: Excellent, thank you. And yeah, it just seems like make it a priority on all aspects of life, whether it's personal business or otherwise. All right, we're gonna get another question from the audience. Again, you can submit your questions by going to the questions tab. Next question is from Jackie. What are some best practices for how charitable organizations and community groups can integrate climate change awareness and activism into existing programs? Not everyone at once. So I think what we're... What are some of the best practices that charities and different organizations can do to integrate into their already existing programs, or what steps can people take just to kind of start thinking about this on a fundamental level?
3: Well, I'll just offer this. I don't know if this is what the question means, but one of the things I'm seeing is that some, uh, some foundations are starting to really encourage intersectoral partnerships. So for example, we're involved with, and I don't know if Winnipeg Foundation does this, but we work with the Tides uh, Foundation and they really want environmental groups and health groups and community groups all to be working together on problems, recognizing that you're more effective when you've got different voices coming to the table with different levels of expertise, different audiences. So I don't think that's quite what the question meant, but I think that is a really important way to approach some of these issues. We need that cross-sectoral kind of um, collaboration between organizations. Do you have anything to
1: add? At?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, I think for for us, it's a matter of um, one program that comes to mind is we have a partnership with, uh, through Health Canada, to go into classrooms and, and teach kids the impacts of air pollution. And we have kids actually use equipment and they go outside and they measure the air quality. And we have real discussions about how their transportation choices are impacting Air pollution, but then we connect it also to uh, climate change and how it's all interconnected. And I think we've touched on a lot of that this evening and how the themes relate. Um, but it, the, sort of, I think the, to the benefit of community organizations, is that climate change really does connect to everything. So. it it really makes sort of that job easy, an easy sell whether you're talking about plastics or transportation or or composting, climate change relates to it and um, I I agree with what you said too is bringing different voices in and it brings kind of um, a credibility to what you're doing so for example the bicycle education and skills training program I talked about in the Seven Oaks School Division, Manitoba Public Insurance is involved because they, they believe in the program and they also see a safety aspect of it too. So, no matter what kind of player you are, they can connect to community organizations and community work too and, and be part of that climate solution.
0: Yeah, it's all about that connectedness. Ian, did you wanna maybe talk about sort of those partnerships that you've been working on over the past few years and how that's all come together and what it's like with so many moving parts, but having those, uh, having those partnerships and coalitions that are forming?
5: Yeah, I think that, again, many people are receptive to science and scientists and academics like me kind of speaking about this stuff, but a lot of people aren't. Uh, people kind of glaze over, and again, it might be the language, but it, sometimes we're not the messenger and people in community, community groups, you know, different kind of points of entry into the issue is a really important thing because you know it's it's these unexpected conversations that you have, you know, when you walk through the door of a community organization or a charity or you think you're going to a meeting about this, but it's actually got climate change built into this and you're like, oh wait a second, it's all connected and building that kind of holistic conversation is, is quite important. But you know, we take our, our cues in some ways from marketing agencies. You know who sells the best hockey skates in the world? Wayne Gretzky. You don't get me to sell hockey skates. And so we have the people on the land, you know, the farmers, the foresters, the indigenous communities, you know, the community groups doing the work saying, you know what, this is actually how this is real in the context of our lived realities. And so it's that kind of multiple messenger approach because The conventional way in which this has happened is not working. The climate scientists aren't getting through, the activists aren't getting through, everybody needs to be having their own conversations and their own vocabulary and their own context and their own communities. And the more that wheel radiates out, the more those partnerships kind of get infused into the kind of idea of talking it through. I think that's part of that groundswell is, again, it can't be public interest groups, it can't be specific sectors, it can't be the Green Party is the only group that shows up and talks about climate change, it has to be everybody on board with this. And I think that partnership thing is a critical part of this.
0: Well said. All right, we'll go to one more, maybe a couple more audience questions, if we can get one more from Slido from Anonymous. What is the best way that citizens of all ages can influence policy change? For example, to what extent do demonstrations such as hashtag Fridays for Future have, and what kind of an impact do hashtags like that have from all ages, from kids to adults to our uh, elderly population?
3: Well, I'll weigh in here just to say, I think, first of all, citizens... I think sometimes citizens don't realize just what a voice they have. The politicians hear from citizens, you don't need to be an expert, they just wanna know what you think. So we keep saying to people, just just let your let your MP know, let your city councilor know that you care about climate change, you're worried about it, you wanna see deep action. I think that, that um, decision makers care much more about what individual residents think or their constituents than people realize. So I think that is important. I would say with demonstrations, I'm not sure how much decision makers listen to demonstrations, But I think demonstrations are incredibly important for us. I think when we go to demonstrations, we see all these other people who care about an issue that we care about, and we don't feel so alone. We don't feel such despair. And I think sometimes, myself, as I get older, I forget the value of that until I go to one, and then I think, oh, this is why we do it. It's not so much whether or not the papers pick it up or whether the decision makers do anything. It's more that it's kind of a way of reminding each other that we're not in it alone, that other people care. So that's just my thoughts.
5: I might jump in there. This kind of Friday's for the future thing, so everybody will likely know of Greta Thunberg from Sweden and the influence this young 16-year-old woman has had by, you know, protesting outside the Swedish parliament every Friday, and within a year of her starting that kind of individual protest, it has risen to a global movement. I would not be surprised if she gets the Nobel Peace Prize this year, and the global kind of strike on September 27th is probably going to be the biggest environmental mobilization of people on the planet. And it's. Serious, And uh, I honestly think that that governance in the modern era that we live in right now will be revoked by the young people who are living this and looking at their future and saying, this cannot go on. And we are seeing a rise in that youth voice and that youth voice, they cannot vote. They cannot vote for their future. The only thing that they can do is stand up and say, you know what, we're scared about it, and we demand that our parents and that people in government take this seriously. And when I started talking about my daughter coming home yesterday, I mean it. If we don't take this seriously, the people in power will be denied that power because these young people will stand up and say, that is unacceptable. And when they get to the point when they can vote, it will not be the future we are living in now, it will be the future they define for us, because of the necessity of
0: it. Well said. So we're coming near, that's a great point to end on, I think, it's uh, obviously a strong point to end on. But as we get to the top of the hour, or the end of the hour, I wanna give the panelists just one more opportunity for some closing comments to leave with the audience. We'll start with Kim from Cape. Uh, in one minute or less, what would you like people to take away from tonight, and uh, what are you hoping people take with them.
3: I think one of the things I'd like to say, just because sometimes I don't get to say it, is that I think it's really important that individuals take action, absolutely. But I think the other thing that we really need to say, and I say this as a public health professional, the things that we've learned as public health professionals is that you can tell somebody to go and exercise all you like, but if their lives don't accommodate it, if their built environment doesn't accommodate, they're not going to do it. So I think we need to understand that we need government policies, government programs to support the actions that we need individuals to take. So I don't think, like for me, I don't spend a lot of time telling individuals what to do. I think as individuals, we need to demand that our governments make it easy to take public transit, that they make it safe to cycle, that they make it easy for us to walk to school. And so at some level, like then all that other stuff will fall in place. So I feel like that did kind of come out a little bit when, I'm just going to draw a blank because I'm tired. Um, when, Heather, Heather is <laughs> so sorry when Heather is speaking. But I think that's the kind of message I think for people is that we need to demand our decision makers that they that they give us the tools, the policies, the programs, the subsidies that we need to have a society that allows us all to make this happen together.
0: So. Thank you, Kim. Uh, now, Heather Mitchell from the Green Action Center, if you have some parting thoughts.
4: Um, that was very well said. I was, I was gonna say something very, very similar to that. So I think really um, on behalf of Green Action Center, we don't want people to lose sight of the power that we hold as individuals, and I know there's a lot of um, like researchers and advocates out there saying that we need collective and systemic change, and that's definitely important, but we individually hold a lot of power, whether you're a friend or family member, or co-worker, or consumer, um, it, your action, your individual actions every day may seem very small in the grand scheme of things, um, but they're powerful, and if we all are shifting our behavior, um, you know, in conjunction to policy and built environment, um, we can, we can shape our future for the better, um, and so I encourage you if you're, you're feeling inspired af- after, tonight and you want to take action and learn how to do more, um, visit greenactioncenter.ca to see, you know, what's going on, other events to attend and how you can use that, uh, individual power.
0: Excellent. Uh, Before Ian gets his last word in, I wanna give our traditional knowledge keeper one more uh, moment with the microphone just so she can uh, have some parting thoughts as well.
1: Are you guys going anywhere soon? (laughs) I just wanna tell you a a teaching that my father gave me uh, when I was growing up and he, he told me that the English language was going to be the most influential language in the world and that I'd better get to know it and know it well. And he showed me this exercise one Saturday morning as we were doing the crossword puzzle, which we did every Saturday morning. And he said, he said, I want you to write this down. He said, I want you to write human beings. So I wrote human beings down on the piece of paper. And he said, I'm going to show you what one tiny letter can do to change your thinking, to change your mind, to change your way of being. He said, I want you to take that S, and I want you to move it from beings, and I want you to put it on the end of human. So I want you to say what that says when you do that. Say it out loud. Put it on the end of human, the S on the end of human. Humans Humans. being. Say it again. He said, Wouldn't you rather live in a world of humans being than a world of human beings? Because right now, we ain't getting it as human beings. Maybe if we're humans being around this issue of what we need to change individually, partnerly, collectively, any which way. You know, one of the things that I found very fruitful in my house with my grandchildren is recycle like Michael. You seen that commercial, those commercials with that little guy? My grandkids think he's fabulous and they learn from him all the time. So it's not always big, magnanimous things. It's those simple conversations. And I was telling uh, my little sister here that, you know, when do we think about gathering together moms to have a conversation, to feel included, instead of just being at home looking after the kids? So there's lots of people to think about in this change and we can't forget anybody. So, Pop, thank you for that teaching. I live by it daily, or I try to anyway. And um, thank you for the time.
0: And now Dr. Ian Moreau, if you want to leave us with some final thoughts.
5: I think I've said enough. The last word goes to the elder.
0: (laughs) Okay. Thank you all for being here. Uh, That brings us to the end of the program, but now I'd like you to share some of your thoughts with the evening. Uh, If you wanna talk about your biggest takeaway, what you thought tonight delivered or didn't deliver for our benefit for the next events that we have, uh, you can go on Slido or give us a written answer. If you don't have a cell phone, that's fine too. So there is a 160-character limit, so just like Twitter, but if you go on to slido.com and then put in the hashtag again, what was your biggest takeaway from tonight's vital conversation? Leave us with your thoughts, whatever you happen to think or say. We'll leave that open for a while so it doesn't have to be all right now. If you want to collect your thoughts, uh, please do so. But um, let's just give one more round of applause for our panel, for our discussion. It was an amazing discussion tonight. And uh, on behalf of the foundation, the Winnipeg Foundation and the Green Action Center, thank you all for coming and sharing your thoughts with us. Have a great evening. Drive safe, walk safe, bike safe. Have a great night.